You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Byron Williams. We're back with the small print. And today I have with me Perth Toll, who is the founder of Liberty Indexes, a very interesting company. I connected with her on Twitter and I really wanted to bring her into this show because she's got some really valuable ideas when it comes to how policy is impacting on economic growth in nations, not just for individuals or for countries themselves, but also for investors. So in other words, the investment opportunity of having an open, liberal, free society. So to start with, Perth, I'd love you to introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced for our audience today. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Perth Toll. I am, as you said, the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. Um, We are the providers of the world's first freedom-weighted emerging markets index um, and uh, and ETF. So so yeah, that's, that's what we do. Yeah, so this idea was really, really interesting to me because at the moment there's a lot of talk going on in the world about ESG investment and how they're a good investment to get involved with. But a lot of those sorts of, you know, good types of investments that are supposed to make you feel good about what you're buying for your portfolio can tend to be very, very subjective. And what appealed to me with the work that you're doing is that your funds, your whole parameters that you use really do seem to be quite weighted in science and in data. So maybe you can start off by just telling a little bit about what your fund does and what makes it different for people that haven't seen the background that I've seen on your work. Yeah, sure. So what uh, what we do is basically we freedom weight the emerging markets and it's it's a it's an index and ETF products. And so what how that is different is that most emerging markets indexes and ETFs are market capitalization weighted, which means the largest companies and the largest countries get the largest weight. As a result, um, China has about a 40% weight in most of these emerging markets indexes, just one country. Um, And then other kind of very unfree markets with bad human rights practices like Saudi Arabia, Russia, Turkey, Egypt, um, also get an additional weight. So you end up with more than 50% in some of these um, countries with very poor human rights practices. And that's something that most investors, not only ESG investors, would prefer to probably avoid. Um, So we created this for investors who believe in the long-term benefits of freedom um, to be able to express that in their emerging markets allocations. Yeah, it's really fantastic. So when it comes to investing, there really are two things. There's a sort of ethics and your personal ideas as to where you want to put your money. Because as I like to say, Mm -hmm. where we spend our money is what makes the future as it goes forward. So we can choose to sort of hedge against things we don't want, or we can choose to invest in things that we do want. But that's the more sort of ethical side of it. There's also then the economic side of these models and the the real data that goes into saying that societies that are more open and more free are actually a good investment opportunity too, at least certainly from the the numbers that I've looked looked at, especially if you start going back further in time when you sort of start to smooth out some of those more sort of cyclical trends and look at the bigger picture. Would you agree with those two statements or would you put any caveats in place before we carry on? No, I would absolutely agree with those statements. And I think that's very insightful because um, usually within the finance world, we are looking at a very limited time frame and a very limited data set. And we beat that data to death. So we have so much data in the last hundred or a couple hundred years or so. Um, and it's usually the US data that we're looking at. And we're just beating this data to death and trying to torture all kinds of you know, conclusions out of it. Um, when, if you look at the, the longer cycles, as you said, of history, history has shown that freer markets, they, they perform extremely, um, uh, they outperform extremely well over the, the, the unfree market. So if you, you look at uh, countries that have, um, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of media, rule of law, private property rights, um, these types of freedoms and, and protections for the freedoms for their citizens. These are the countries that have done well over time. And in emerging markets, um, you know, in developed markets, most of the countries are already pretty free and they have these kind of foundations in place that set the conditions for growth. But in the emerging markets, half of them are not so free. And so they don't have these conditions in place. And so you have to, in those markets depend on what the government wants to do. Um, 
And we see that going on here very clearly with some of the larger emerging markets. And so the freer emerging markets, we believe, are going to be kind of the ground zero for growth in the next decade. Okay, fantastic. So when it comes to the freedom weighting that you put in place, when you look at the investments that you score and that you allocate to your various different portfolios, what are some of the metrics that you're actually looking at? Because freedom can be quite a vacuous idea. It means different things to different people. But obviously, you're working in the world of finance, you have to start to quantify these things. Otherwise, you can't really build a basket. So what is it that you are looking at? As much as you can tell us without sort of diving too deep into your secret source and proprietary. (laughs) Yeah, no, not a secret. So, so yeah, no, we, we use some um, quantitative freedom metrics from third parties so to keep complete third party objectivity. Um, my definition of freedom or what countries I think are freer doesn't factor into the methodology at all. So we use data from the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute, and the Friedrich Naumann Foundation in Germany. And they have a joint project that comes out with, you know, with uh, 162 different countries and, and ranked on 76 different metrics, including what we consider the rights to life, the rights to liberty, and the rights to property. So rights to life are things like torture, disappearances, um, women's rights, politically mo- motivated killings, and so forth. Rights to liberty are things like uh, rule of law, due process, civil procedure, criminal procedure, um, freedom of speech, freedom of media, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, um, freedom of the internet, and so forth. And then economic freedoms are things like uh, private property rights, taxation, soundness of monetary policy, um, the level of government interference in private markets, and the freedom to trade internationally. So they take all of these measures and add it together to make a composite score per country. We take those scores for the emerging markets country set, which is about 26 emerging markets. And then we turn those scores into country weights. So the higher the freedom levels in a country, the higher its weight in our index, the lower the freedom level, the lower its weight and the the least free markets are excluded altogether. So that's a, it's a hundred percent freedom weighted. So it's not a freedom tilt or a freedom kind of um, overlay, which would not end up with the same results. Those types of, um, uh, you know, methods end up with something very similar to the benchmarks typically. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. I want to create a, a differentiated kind of solution for investors who want to reward the freer countries um, with their allocations and promote freedom in their emerging markets investing. That's really great. When did you start doing this? So when did this index have its genesis? How long have you got data to show the, the workings of your work? Yeah, so the index has been live since 2017, June of 2017. The ETF has been trading live since uh, May of 2019. But the idea really came about a long time before that. Um, I grew up in China and the US. And so I split my childhood between two very different countries when it comes to freedom levels. Um, After college, I went back and lived in Hong Kong for a while. Um, And then when I was in Hong Kong, I traveled to Shanghai and Beijing and throughout. um, And I saw the difference that uh, freedom made in my life as well as in the markets in these places. So so, so I realized then that, hey, these policies um, have an impact. One policy that affected me a lot was the one child policy in China. Um, I had a friend in Shanghai who we called Maggie, um, but she had, she was the exact same as me and all of my friends who grew up in America in every single way. We were the same age, like everything was exactly the same, Um, but she doesn't exist on paper. So she has no school records, no birth certificate, no social security benefits. She has, she does not exist on paper because of the one child policy and her parents registered her brother for school and for existence basically. So, um, so a lot of these, and these, these are, this is a phenomenon that exists um, in China. These are the, the lucky ones, right? There's, so they're, they're, these children that don't exist on paper, but actually exist in real life are called black children. So you can, you know, Google black children in China and get some results and, and learn about this phenomenon, um, which is not really talked about a lot, um, but there's a lot of them in my generation. Um, and the, the other, you know, um, thing that really hit me about the one child policy is that there's 30 million missing women in China. So these are, they're just gone. 
and um, because of the selective births and things like that that come from that came from the one child policy. So that's not something that a society could easily replace and reverse. You know, as you see, they're trying to now, but what they've done is they've gone to the two child policy, which to me is not a reversal. Um, a reversal might be like, okay, we'll give you tax benefits for having as many children as you can or something like that, right? Um, but, or just completely lift the limits. So why should a government tell someone how many children they can have? So those kinds of things um, I saw like really change the whole culture of my generation. And, um, and that's kind of one of the, the biggest inspirations for, for what I do now. So this idea really came, I think that the seed for it came when I was in Hong Kong around 2003 and 2004. That's really, really interesting. And I love what you said about the whole one child, two child policy. Cause I mean, they only relaxed that two children. When was it in 2016, right? That it started yeah. rolling out. So it's still really, really fresh. People are very surprised when I mentioned right. that there still are restrictions. And yeah. it's, it's very strange because there's such good data to show that population growth correlates with economic growth and, pro and progress. Exactly. I mean, we know this from like the whole demographic dividends, which is part of the main reason why China has done so well on yeah. paper over the last generation is because of a large and growing booming population. And when you start to see that how a lack of freedom has actually sort of been a, a self-inflicted wound and own goal yes. on society going forward, and how now people are starting to wake up to the realization, especially post-COVID, when we start looking at seeing what even just a temporary pause on birth rates can do to productivity and growth, and how governments across the world now are thinking about things like incentivizing births or paying families extra money to have more kids. It's just a really interesting small example, but one of many, many examples that show how freedom or at least allowing people to do what they believe is best for themselves is good for the collective too. So it's sort of the irony yeah. of selfish behavior does not necessarily lead to selfish outcomes. And I say selfish sort of with inverted commas and that just letting exactly. people do what they believe is best for themselves often ends up being best for society at large. But that's, yeah. of course, just one aspect of freedom when you start talking about things like, you know, governments literally controlling what you're going to do in your bedroom and in your home, which is, of course, a very extreme end of the wage. There's various yeah. different degrees of freedom there. And I want to come back to something you said earlier about the sort of three pillars you were looking at. Two of the pillars, the first two pillars really did speak, as you we were talking about earlier, more to do with ethics. And the third one was more mm -hmm. to do about sort of economics, because the third right. pillar is the things that are just basic requirements in order to have a functional economy. You need things like property rights, something that's yeah. in question in my country at the moment, for, for example. <laughs> we really are cognizant yeah. of because you can't really plan or invest if you don't have a set of rules to follow. So those are much more objective, much less subjective metrics, whereas the other two pillars speak more to ethics. But when you start unpacking them, like you did now with the whole birth rate story, for example, it sounds like mm -hmm. it's an ethical principle to stand behind. When you get into the data, you start to see there's actually an economic reason for why having general freedoms, social freedoms, as well as economic freedoms, is good from an investment point of view. I think that's quite important to get into when we start looking at trying to get more people to buy into these ideas, and particularly mm -hmm. citizens and voters and governments, where there are a lot of pressures, particularly in our world right now, when there's so many entitlements upon the state, people are looking at governments to impose more law and order and rules in order to sort of solve their short-term problems. People aren't necessarily seeing how social freedoms that seem like they are just about the social sphere can actually end up impacting on their economic lives in the not too distant future going ahead. So I'm not sure if you have any more insights into some of those sort of less obvious freedoms, not as I said, the things like property rights and rule of law and all the rest of it, but some of the more subtle freedoms as to how they impact on the success of growth and, and progress within a society, yeah. not just from a moral perspective, more from a monetary perspective. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, because when I first started this, actually, our data providers themselves asked me, hey, why are you including human freedoms why, or personal freedoms? Why are you not just using economic freedoms? Because this is an economic product. Um, and I think they answered their own question. And one of them came up with, with, the, with the thought that, hey, freedoms are like the parts of an automobile. You can't have, you know, one without the other, the car still, you can't have a, a steering wheel without a transmission, the car still won't run. So, you know, one of the things, especially in ESG that we're noticing is that 
ESG metrics are very reliable, transparent, and well, um, you know, well accessible in markets that have these basic freedoms like freedom of speech and freedom of media, because these, these metrics are subject to, you know, accountability to the public and the media, right? But in these other less free countries, these ESG metrics become very hard to, to rely on to measure and to compare because they're self-reported and these data are not subject to independent verification by the public and by the media. So the freedom of the media, even though it's not a, an economic freedom, uh, is, is a very important piece of you know, how reliable even your data is. So without data, we can't invest at all as indexers. Um, so, so, you know, that is one example of why, you know, one of those freedoms, like freedom of media is important. Freedom of speech is very important. You know, in, in some of these countries, they black out the internet when there's protests or they don't have access to Twitter at all or to, you know, Facebook or any, any of these social media platforms and people are not able to speak out and they only speak out on platforms that are censored and monitored. So anytime you say something that is, um, that the government doesn't want to get around, then, you know, you get censored and possibly you could get detained or, you know, asked to come have tea with the police, you know? <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, that's, that's these, these types of um, conversations um, that are free flowing um, in the investor community are so important. And without that freedom of speech, that just can't exist. And so some of these things, and obviously if you don't have, if you don't have your life, then you can't invest. So, you know, freedom, the right to life is important, right? So if you're not, you can't be disappeared, detained or tortured um, if you're going to be an investor. So, so, you know, that's important for investors. So, um, so yeah, so a lot of these freedoms that seem to be, you know, uh, non-economic are actually the basis of the economic freedoms. And then the, the economic freedoms in turn provide the basis for these freedoms because if you don't have the freedom to provide for your family the way that you want if you have to know someone in the government to be able to have a job then then you don't really have freedom right so that each of the freedoms support each other and they're intrinsically linked um, like the parts of an automobile that makes it run so um, that's why we consider all these different freedoms that's a wonderful way to put it. But maybe we can just go a little bit deeper under the hood of that particular automobile. And obviously you have said, made a very good case for saying why we need both social and economic freedoms in order to have sort of progress and prosperity. But when it comes to your weighting that you've put together, there are there any particular freedoms within that mix that are more, most important that you lend a higher weighting to in your particular index? And if so, why are those the cornerstones of freedom in an economic market? Yeah, so I think one of the most important ones, if I had to choose, which I can't really choose, but if I had to, um, would be probably property rights and rule of law, uh, not rule by law, but rule of law, right? So, so you know, where you know might doesn't equal right, but in the you know military might doesn't equal right either, and it's just um, the the rule of law um, lays out very clearly, you know, how how we do things and, and what the procedures are and um, when you have that, that's the kind of predictability and certainty that the market needs. Um, I heard someone, someone just, just tagged me on Twitter today. Actually, one of your previous guests, Alex Gladstein, just tagged me on Twitter on a video where Larry Fink, who is the CEO of iShares, was saying in a video that, hey, markets like authoritarian governments because they like certainty. And I would 100% disagree with that. And I would say that, yeah, markets like certainty. They like the certainty of rule of law. They like to know that if I'm going to sign a contract with someone, that it will be enforced by law. And I can sue them if they, if they you know, um, breach the contract. You know, markets like to know that I am protected with certain rights, that if my employer, um, that if my employer uh, breaches, then, then I have... Um, repercussions that I can do. So markets like that kind of certainty. They don't like the kind of certainty where the government tells you how you could run your company or, or your life or, you know, how many children you can have. That's not the kind of certainty that markets like. That's considered, um, like, instead of certainty, that's more like restraints, right? What he's talking about, the authoritarian governments, those are restraints. Markets don't like restraints. Markets like certainty, and that comes from rule of law, and he has twisted that to make it sound like, oh, authoritarian governments are better for markets. They're absolutely not. Maybe 
if you're looking at, I think what he's doing is looking at maybe China in the last 30 years or so. But in the last 30 years, the reason why China has grown so much is because they, they removed those restraints under Mao. And you know the people lifted themselves out of poverty because those restraints were removed. And now the pendulum is swinging the other way. And that's part of the uncertainty of investing in these more authoritarian markets is that they had that growth story for a while and without matching those you know, liberalizations on the economic freedom side with personal freedoms, now that pendulum is swinging the other way. And that growth story is becoming a story of the past. And I think that is probably what Larry Fink was, was referring to. Um, and he's kind of living in the past if he still believes that. So, so I would disagree with that statement um, that Alex just tagged me on. And, um, and I think that rule of law is probably the most important thing because markets do like that kind of certainty. Yeah, exactly. I think that whole rule of law, rule by law, so it's a mm-hmm. very small little proposition that gets to change, but it changes yep. really everything. It's the difference between knowing what and knowing who is in control. And I think yeah. that a lot of people have come to understand this over the last year when a lot of our constitutions have been sort of usurped by sort of rule by or rule, rule by arbitrary law by sort of executive councils due to what's gone on with COVID and all the rest of it, which brings me to my mm-hmm. next question, which is this whole thing of what is happening with that pendulum? You've mentioned China, the pendulum swinging from they liberalized quite a lot over the last generation. It was a period of huge growth. They seem to be deliberalizing in a lot of ways. Obviously, Hong Kong's a great point, case in point over there too, is to just sort of signposts and signals as to the direction they're tending. But obviously your fund is quite new or your your weighting index is is quite new. As you said, it's only been running for a couple of years, but you've obviously had to go back and look at this data over some time in order to formulate these models. You obviously have looked at at some sort of time trends as well as just present data. What are you noticing in terms of trends within emerging markets? Because I know from my work in the futures and the economic space, it's been quite depressing to see a lot of those freedom trends reversing over the last sort of 10, 12 years. And I'm talking about across the world, but I suppose particularly in emerging markets, which like most things when it comes to emerging markets, trends shift faster because when you have sort of less established, less sort of stagnant sort of societies, things do tend to happen a bit faster. So trends tend to sort of lead in those markets. We've definitely seen pullbacks from democracy. We know democracy across the world is in decline. We know that free and open markets are in decline. We know that things like globalization are in decline, being replaced by more like balkanized worlds. And those are the sort of macro trends I've been looking at from a global perspective. What have you seen within the countries that you are tracking in your particular basket that you're looking at? What are the trends that we're seeing? Are emerging markets trending more free according to to your models or not? Yeah, so what I see as far as the the last few years um, in the emerging markets is that, yeah, absolutely, um, freedoms are declining across the board. um, But the freer markets are taking more of a stand for freedom as well. So um, you see markets like Taiwan um, as an answer to, to freedom in the region. With everything going on in Hong Kong, they've been supportive of Hong Kong, um, of the freedom movement in Hong Kong since day one. And, um, you know, com- countries uh, like Colombia actually taking in a lot of refugees from Venezuela and so forth. So some of these more free countries stepping it up in their regions even as the less free countries are declining even further. So I see more of a divergence in the emerging markets, uh, perhaps throughout the world as well, but definitely the emerging markets. But, uh, and at the time um, I launched this, we were about to file for the fund in the US. And one of my board members, I was like, you know, freedom is declining. Um, are, are we sure we still wanna do this? And, and the board members were like, yeah, that actually makes it more important. That, that we do it. So he was like, file, you know? So, so yeah, the, um, the, we have considered, hey, freedom is declining across the world. And, and we decided that, yeah, that makes it even more important to have a strategy like this. Um, and we do see that divergence. And what we've seen also is that freer markets tend to have more sustainable growth. They tend to recover faster from drawdowns. And we got to test that last year. And they have more efficient use of capital and labor. So they have less capital flight and less capital destruction. So even as these these less free markets are losing their people and and capital, they're losing them to the more free markets. And um, you'll see that kind of shift going on currently and in the next 
few years is that some of these people are going to be be transitioning from they're migrating from the unfree markets to the more free markets and the free markets will benefit from that. So there's a lot of benefits happening right now to the freer emerging markets um, as the decoupling from the less free emerging markets are happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the vicious and virtuous cycles are something that we've seen across sort of all aspects of society at the moment when you're talking about economics, politics, freedoms, whatever you want to pick, inequalities do seem to be diverging quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But I suppose to sort of follow on on that thought a little bit is to say, what are the, the freest countries in your index at the moment? What are the ones that are being held up as aspirational, the ones that are going to be winning big, if you want to put it that way, in the, <laughs> the short-term horizon? Yeah, so the, the freest emerging markets right now in our index are Taiwan, South Korea, and Chile. Chile being one that is not very, um, you know, it's, it's not a huge emerging market, so it doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, and right now, you know, just like all of that in America, they're struggling too with, uh, with COVID. Um, but they have been a shining light for freedom in, in, Latin, in South America. And um, they are one of the better performing uh, emerging markets as far as their stock market this year as well. So um, that's, that's one that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, now, one thing to know about Chile is that they, uh, they do a lot of trade with China. So they have like 25% of their trade with China, which is an un- a less free market and it's a uh, it's excluded from our index and so that's something that that we do is we don't penalize free trade we say the more trade the better um, so we do we do end up with some indirect china trade exposure in our index and you'll see that in every index now i mean there's no really no country that doesn't trade with china so um so <laughs> even if you have an s p 500 index you've got a lot of indirect china exposure there so um, that's another reason not to double up on that exposure through, you know, an emerging markets fund that has like 40% in China direct exposure plus all this indirect exposure. So, uh, so yeah, we don't penalize the free trade. We have a lot of countries that trade with the, the less free markets uh, and that's okay. Um, we just, we just don't invest directly in companies that are answering to the governments in those markets. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you got to be consistent, right? If you're advocating freedom, you have to advocate all freedoms. You can't sort of yes. stick in shoes, right? And then yeah. I suppose the, the other end of that question is then, what are the ones at the bottom of your index at the moment, the ones that are in danger of, as you say, being excluded altogether, because you do have some sort of cutoff point that you work across? Who have you got yeah. your eye on that could fall below the line? Yeah, so we do have a um, freedom decline momentum rule. And this is where if a country that's currently included in the index falls, you know, too quickly in their freedom levels over any given year, they are then kicked out of the index. Um, the only country that's ever triggered this rule is Turkey. In 2017, they were included in the index. Um, and then and, and during, out, during the year, their freedom levels declined um, more than five points on one of our scales that we use and they were kicked out of the index and they haven't been in there since 2018. Um, so one country that I would say is kind of in danger of that right now in the index is Brazil. So Brazil has a very small weight. It um, fluctuates between three and 4% right now. And um, they, you know, their government is uh, showing a little bit of autocratic tendencies, but they still have you know, a lot of you know, good things happening um, as well. But there's, there's certainly some concerns there. They also have very high homicide rates. They have the highest homicide rates in the world. And um, our data providers are the only ones that I know of that consider homicide rates as a freedom metric because they believe that if you can't walk down the street without being shot at, then you're not really free. So, um, so I, um, I, you know, using their metrics without my input, I do accept that as well. And um, so Brazil, I would say, is, is in danger of getting dropped out. And just for our listeners, because we are in South Africa, is South Africa in your index? Or if it is, it's not, what does it need to do? <laughs> is, is it, you know, how, does it, how does it fit in the, in the overall rankings? Because yeah, we all have South Africa uh, is an interesting country. So it's, it's actually, it, it is in the index and it's one of the mid level. So it's, it's um, freer than Brazil, uh, less free than Chile or Taiwan or uh, Poland or, or um, South Korea. Um, so it's kind of like in the middle there fluctuating between a five and 6% weight. Um, you would know the market better than me. I think South Africa has uh, a lot of potential. 
Um, it's very vibrant. It's pretty vibrant market. It has a lot, you know, of free thought going on. And one thing that I've noticed about South Africa um, from following you and other people from there is that you guys are very vocal about um, criticizing your own government and your own policies. It's very, it's a very vibrant discussion. And for you to be able to do that shows me that there is some freedom there and um, that, that there is a vibrant discussion going on in the civil society, which is very important. So, um, you know, doing this work, I get a lot of input or, you know, feedback and, you know, solicited or unsolicited um, from people from these countries. And what I've noticed is that from the very unfree markets that are excluded, sometimes um, sometimes I get like troll army attacks, right, from these countries. And they're just like, you know, personal attacks, just like, you know, kind of like you see with hap happening to some like journalists in these countries. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you <laughs> know. Uh, but in some other countries, like from, like Brazil, South Africa, um, India, from these countries, when I, when, when people realize that they have either a smaller weight in our index or they're not included at all at some point, they're like, yeah, that sounds about right. Like literally, you guys agree when, when we give you a smaller way. So, so I see a huge discrepancy between the reactions in these markets of who is allowed to criticize their government and who isn't. So South Africa would be definitely on the side of you are definitely allowed to criticize your government and you love doing it. It's kind of like, I don't know if, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the thing that happened on Twitter a few, uh, maybe six months ago, that was the, the, um, when Thailand was having all their protests and some, or uh, one of the pop stars girlfriends wrote on Twitter something in support of Hong Kong. And then Hong Kong and Thailand became this thing called Milk Tea Alliance. And now Milk Tea Alliance has its own emoji on Twitter. So anyway, it's, it's like this alliance of the Southeast Asian countries that I guess have milk tea and, um, and their freedom movements that kind of link together. So now Myanmar is part of that whole alliance, right? The Milk Tea Alliance. Um, so during that time, the Chinese internet, uh, the people that on the Chinese internet um, started going against the people from Thailand, right? On the internet. So it was mostly, this was an argument mostly on Twitter. And so, so the China Twitter started uh, which China Twitter is kind of like an oxy, like an oxymoron because they're not allowed to have Twitter. People have people that have access to Twitter in China through VPNs or what, whatever happened there um, started bombarding Thailand um, Twitter with criticisms of their their monarchy, and Thailand Twitter was like, "Heck yeah, we completely agree with all of these criticisms." <laughs> so so you know, and then you do the same thing reverse in reverse. China Twitter will never. Say anything against their own government. Um, so, so that's kind of like the, the dichotomy that I see in these countries, which is super interesting. Um, and I see a very vibrant conversation going on in South Africa. So I think you guys are, whatever is wrong there, I have confidence that you guys will be able to, um, to, to bring to light and, and fix the situation eventually, because you have, it seems like very good freedom of speech, speech and expression. <laughs> Yeah, just, just to sort of comment on that for people that perhaps aren't so familiar with what's going on in South Africa. South Africa is very progressive from a social perspective. I mean, we are some of the, the first countries in the world to legalize things like gay marriage, for example. We have a very liberal constitution. It was world leading at the time. It was in the 90s. But I think that over time, some of that has trended in slightly different directions. Like people are quite concerned. But luckily, we do have a very strong media and a very strong legal system that sort of backs up those sort of freedoms of speech. But there are sort of signs towards more authoritarian interference in things like freedom of speech, things like jail sentences for spreading non-government compliant messaging around COVID, for example, was a bit of a shock to a more very liberal society from a social perspective. However, as we were speaking about earlier, when it comes to freedoms, you kind of need the, the social and the economic freedoms to go hand in hand. And South Africa's economy isn't quite as free as it appears. And it isn't free on many different levels. It isn't free because it's very unequal. And being very unequal means it's not free in practical levels, even if it is freer on a sort of legal basis, which is definitely worth considering. I don't know how that fits into your models. If you say you've got things like homicide that are inside them, perhaps things like inequality lend towards that because those are artificial constraints on the marketplace in, in reality. But I think that there's lots of economic interference from the public sector into the private sector as to who you can hire, who you can fire, how capital is allowed to flow. And uh, although it's not entirely, we definitely don't live in a totalitarian state, 
but we our economic freedoms don't line up. They're not they're not like following in a nice diagonal across that sort of that Nolan chart, for example. So we don't have like equal mm -hmm. social and economic freedoms at the same time, which means we do tend to be particularly vocal about it because we're allowed to complain <laughs> more than we're allowed to do things. So sort yeah. of the two do feed each other. I think that's something that a lot of people feel. Obviously, there's reasons for a lot of those economic constraints. A lot of them are designed to address inequality for better or for worse. But I think that that's, that's generally where, where the, sort of the, the, the problems come in into what makes our society not as free as it could or should be if we wanted to really invest in growth. I'm not sure if you do have a comment on that, that whole inequality point or if you see that as even being a freedom issue or not, because it's a... It's yeah, quite... so inequality is not one of our inputs um, into the freedom metrics. However, it's not one of the 76 metrics. However, it is one of the things that correlates highly with freedom. So you see in the freer countries that there's lower levels of inequality. And that's very clear if you look at the different, different quartiles. Um, there's lower inequality, there's lower poverty rates, there's um, the, the, the lowest level of income is higher in the freer markets. Um, there's higher left life expectancy, there's um, higher gender equality as well in the freer markets. So the, and there's higher levels of democracy. So democracy is not an end goal in itself, it's freedom. Freedom is the end goal. Democracy is a good way to get freedom at times, um, but that's not the only way. And also it's not the end goal, right? So, you know, so, so, so freedom um, does correlate highly with governments that are democratic um, and it has all of these other societal benefits as well. So the lower inequality is, is one of those benefits of freedom, not one of the inputs of the metrics of freedom. Yeah. That's probably something for us to think about because being the world's most unequal society, but not being one of the world's most unfree societies is probably quite an interesting place mm -hmm. for us to be in. It does make us question what's correlation, what's causation going on here. Yeah. And it also may, gives us pause for thought as to whether increasing restrictions on freedom is actually going to help us to therefore reduce inequality because that's an assumption that's being made. The assumption that's being made is that too much freedom results in higher inequality, but based on the sort of policies that are being put into place by, by economists and by politicians right now. But perhaps there's room for us to, to challenge that assumption, to say that perhaps if we want to reduce inequality, however uncomfortable and counterintuitive it is, we might actually need to reduce some of those restrictions that we're trying to put into place. Because a lot of unintended Absolutely. consequences can come through there. So that's a sort of subtext I'll get. I'm not going to make an empirical claim there, but it's definitely something <laughs> for everyone listening to think about that maybe the, yeah. the correlation causation runs in a slightly different direction to what feels intuitive from a populist political point of view. Absolutely. But, yeah, I've, I'm really interested to, to find out a little bit more about those sort of 76, I think you just mentioned 76 different different items that are inside your waiting. Is that the correct number? Yes. Okay, so great. there's 76 lot different of variables. Yeah, and our data provider splits it into two categories, kind of like you did, the social versus the economic. They, they use the, the terms personal versus economic. And I split it into three categories, rights to life, rights to liberty, and rights to property. All 76 metrics are, are equal weighted to get the end number. So there's no one that's, that they consider more important than the other. Um, so, you know, some of those metrics, like women's freedoms, for example, is five metrics and includes a lot of things like right to children after divorce, um, FGM practices in the country, um, missing women, as in the case of China. So these are proxies that measure women's, free, women's freedom of movement and so forth. Um, so, so all of these things are important because, um, you know, the, if you don't have half of your population treated with the same freedoms as the rest, and this happens a lot in the Middle Eastern countries, as you can imagine, um, like Saudi Arabia is one of our excluded countries, and this is one of the issues with them. So, so th they do go into a high level of detail with these variables and sub variables using proxies. And they do also look at not only the letter of the law, um, but also, so for example, if you look at just the rule of law metrics by like, for example, World Justice Project, you'll get just the letter of the law, whether the law protects certain things, but there's also customs in addition to law. For example, in Saudi Arabia, I have a friend Manal Al-Sharif, who wrote the book, Daring to Drive, which I highly recommend. I think you would love it as well. Um, she's very, uh, an independent thinking woman. And so I think you could relate. And, and she, um, she actually inspired the song, um, 
Bad Girls by MIA. I don't know if you know, <laughs> it's kind of older song, but, uh, but yeah, so she was one of the, she's like the Rosa Parks of Saudi Arabia. She was one of the first women to drive and film herself driving, put it on YouTube, and then she went to jail for that. Um, the reason why she had the courage to do that is because to her, it didn't make sense um, for women not to be able to drive. She, she worked for Aramco, um, and within the Aramco compound, women could drive, women could own apartments and, and everything. And so she had an apartment. She had, had a five-year-old son at the time who lived with her. Um, and she, you know, drove within the compound. But one day her son was like, hey, mommy, can we go to the mall? And she was like, no, because, you know, we can't drive outside the compound. And he was like, well, why can't you drive outside the compound? And she was like, well, because I'm not a man. And he was like, well, can I drive outside the compound? And she was like, well, when you're 16, you can, but she, then, then he was like, but mommy, how old are you? And she was like, I'm 32. And she was like, wait, <laughs> so a 16 year old boy can drive, but a 32 year old woman cannot. And so women were being treated um, as less than a child. And so, so for her, that was a turning point. And she was like, it doesn't make sense. And so she started looking into it and she found out there is no law against women driving. It's just custom. And so customs are just as important as the letter of the law. You can't just look at one thing like World Justice Project. Uh, you know, I, I have I actually have um, friends who, who do this, who they, they, they manage a pension fund out in California and they contacted me. They were like, hey, this is cool what you're doing. Here's what we do. And what they do is they just look at the, the World Justice Project, which like I said, if I had to pick one, that's the one I would pick, but that's not enough because it, you have to look at customs as well as laws and what actually happens on the ground. So our think tanks have a, a network of 100 think tanks around the world globally. They have a South African um, representative. They also have someone in Poland with a, you know, and they also have someone, you know, everywhere. So basically when they do this, they, they involve everyone. And we go to these freedom meetings with, with everyone there, economic freedom being separate from the total human freedom uh, meetings. And um, for example, in 2016-ish, uh, I was at one of these meetings and the Poland guy, which is why I just thought of him, told me, hey, we uh, are about to uh, inaugurate this, like, this new government that is kind of extreme um, and it's gonna be a little crazy for a while, uh, but that won't affect the markets for a couple years, but we're gonna lose some things like, we're gonna have, they're gonna have, this government is gonna have you know, constitutional majority. We're gonna lose some you know, freedoms like judicial independence and things like that. And it happened just like he said, all of those things happened. The PIS government got into power. They got constitutional majority. Things started eroding as far as um, judicial independence and some of these, these things. And so, um, but that didn't affect the market until a couple years later. So they were, Poland was the best performing emerging market in 2017 and they were number one in our index. And then they dropped to number four in 2018 um, due to the 2017 rankings and they've stayed there since. So it took a couple years and always takes a little time for policies to kind of make their way to, to markets. Um, so yeah, I think th that's a little more on the, the variables that, that are used. Um, there's a lot of variables so I can go into any specific ones if you, if you have specific ones that you're most interested in, but, uh, but yeah, they're, Definitely, we use all of them. We don't, you know, pick and choose. There is, um, you know, uh, the personal metrics are just as important as the economic freedom ones. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important what you said about the lag effect there, because I think that a lot of people, a lot of market mm -hmm. commentators like to hold up players like China to say, this is an example of what can be done with an unfree society, not really understanding the lag effects of the various different policy changes that have happened with the various different regime changes. And you can't be monitoring today's performance based on today's decisions. There's got, there's yeah. got to be that sort of lag effect going on there. I think the gender sort of issues that you picked up on also very interesting because whether it's by policy or just in practice, if you're excluding half of your potential workforce, you're clearly not going to be performing according to the same sort of standard a country that has 100% yeah. of its workforce available to work as they choose to work. So that's very, yeah. very interesting. But the one thing I did want to ask you is that your index does look at emerging markets, but in principle, you can apply the same model to really any country in the world. Have you done yeah. that? Have you looked at how the developed markets, they're not perhaps in your index, but how yeah. they relate to your model? 
And if you have, as I'm sure you have played around with these sorts of things, what are the ones to watch? What are the ones that could have that lag effect that could end up actually making them better or worse in the future that could be interesting? Maybe you can just pull out a couple of, a couple of examples if you have that sort of insight. Yeah, so I have looked at this in the developed markets, but I don't have that data on the top of my head. Um, what I did notice on the developed markets is that they're all like compared to the emerging markets, they're all fairly homogenous or fairly free. So these are markets that have the foundation of freedom in place. And that's probably why they've been able to grow into developed markets. So that's probably not an accident. Um, so the value for an emerging markets, uh, I mean, the value for a freedom weighted strategy was much higher in emerging markets than in developed markets, I would say. And so that's why we started with the emerging markets only because in developed markets, when I did the freedom weighting, um, country inclusion wise, it made, I believe, uh, almost no difference. Like all the same countries were still included, um, but country weight wise, it did make a difference. So for example, I remember uh, New Zealand was like number one um, so, so I was like, well, that's not going to work because, you know, capital markets wise, New Zealand just isn't big enough to be number one in developed markets. So, you know, in the index. So, so, so yeah, I think market cap weighting, which is the standard index weighting mechanism actually works pretty well, uh, in developed markets, uh, you know, even from a freedom perspective, because the, all the, all these markets are pretty free to begin with. Um, so I think there's a lot more value, um, probably to be had with doing this in emerging markets, the freedom weighting instead of developed markets. But there are certainly you know, some developed markets that have recently dropped into emerging markets like Greece, <laughs> which um, it's, it's going back and forth. So it was emerging and then it went to develop and then it went back, got demoted back to emerging. So you can see maybe some of those policies playing out there. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And then in terms of the index itself, I mean, if people are interested in finding out more about this, obviously, are you, are you taking funds? Can people invest in your index directly through, through yourself, through your organization? Or do you sort of rent this model out to other people, to any sort of fund managers that might want to use this data? How can people play around with this tool that you've yeah. developed or what, what are the options? So mostly what we do is uh, make this available through an ETF. So the ETF... Um, is you can find it on the index website. The index ticker is FRDM. And if you go to lifeandlibertyindexes.com, you can find the ETF information there as well. So if you go to lifeandlibertyindexes.com and then click on ETF site, it'll take you to all of the ETF information. And that is, that is an ETF that is a, a US product. So I don't know if South Africans have um, access to this or not actually. So uh, do, you, do you know if you guys have access to US ETFs? We do have some. If people are interested in this, I'll probably direct them towards our friends at Easy Equities because they have been okay. very positive <laughs> in getting all these different sort of fantastic international models available to the South African okay. market. I suppose they're almost like South Africa's answer to like a Robin Hood, if you want to put it that oh, way. I see. Not quite I'm not familiar with yeah. that, so this is not an endorsement <laughs> yeah. in any way. But, um, sure, yeah. but if you're interested in that sort of thing, they, they're a very interesting company and they, they'd probably be someone that you should probably talk to anyway because they, they do interesting things about connecting new products with yeah, new that is interesting. emerging space. So, yeah. so that, that's definitely of, of interest, I'm sure, to many people. The other thing that I wanted to ask you was if people are interested in all 76 of those metrics, if you are concerned as a citizen or an investor, if you want to use that as a sort of checklist against your policymakers, against your fund managers, against your own personal investments, is, yeah. those, is that available somewhere or is it only really available through the index? Um, so, so those are available. Um, we do actually, so we do two things. We do, we make the index available for the ETF as the basis of the ETF, but we also um, license out the country weights on, on our own. So we have a methodology that translates country scores into country weights, and we do license that out to asset managers to use in their SMAs. So we do currently have about the same um, amount of people doing that as, or the same level of assets doing that than the, than the ETF. So um, the ETF though is, is probably for most people, the easiest thing to access. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it's it's wonderful if you do have that list available to people so that they can see. Absolutely. So I think it's such an important conversation to have about trying to link freedom to actually to progress to something that is relevant in people's lives. Because unfortunately, yeah. in our world today, freedom is is like a common good, right? And then we all know what happens with the with the commons. It's a it's a bit of a tragedy because there's always someone who can benefit by eroding a particular piece of freedom whereas yeah. only everybody benefits from freedom and that's only if we're able to see that bigger picture because in the short term and the immediate term we've got close-range problems it's much easier to say oh no we should just sort of delegate away our freedoms and sort of hand away our responsibilities in exchange for getting this particular problem fixed not fully understanding that the longer range bigger picture view does require that freedom as a common good if you want to have sort of more sustainable progress and long run investment that's going to actually work out for for everyone across society and i suppose it comes back to what i mentioned right at the beginning which is why i think your whole initiative is so important is that I do a lot of work in the future space and you kind of got these two sort of views, like people that are sort of afraid of the future and will try hedge against it. So say you live in a slightly unfree country, you'll try and like get your cash out of the country. You're going to use those capital loopholes. You're going to use your cryptocurrencies, whatever you can. You're going to bet against the future of your, yeah. of your country. And that's, that's great to sort of protect what you've got, but there's a different way to look at the future. And that is to say, to actually invest in it, to sort of invest in funds like yours in those EFTs that are going to say, I want to invest in the places that are getting this right, because it's not yeah. just about sort of punishing bad behavior. It's also about rewarding good behavior. And I think that altogether too often we tend to, we tend to go for the hedging option rather than the investing in the future that we do want to have as a society. And this is, this is great because it's win-win. It's sort of, it's, it's a win for the investment. You're not just sort of handing cash over to charity. You're actually investing in a virtuous cycle that can create long run sort of perpetual self-motivating growth going forward. So I really do want to commend you. I think your initiative is absolutely amazing and it's more exciting oh, than you. a lot of the other sort of ESG things that I've looked at, many of which do seem to be quite subjective because you know when it comes to things like yeah. sustainability it's how long is a piece of string and what's sustainable to you might not be sustainable to me and what's good governance to you might be good not good governance to me so I really do like the way that you do have that whole matrix set up and it's very quantifiable and you're obviously able then to go back in time and check whether this is working out or not yep and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That was so well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. That was amazing. <laughs> Thanks very much. But if you've got any other sort of parting shots or where people can find you, if they want to ask you more questions, I know you've mentioned your company, but just yep. if you want to close off there. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at uh, Perth underscore toll and um, on LinkedIn. And again, the, the company website is lifeandlibertyindexes.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This was fun. Like not many people can pull off bangs and yours are so cute.